The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we look at the science, art, and craft of lexicography as we go backstage into the process of how dictionaries are made. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Corey Stamper, a lexicographer at Merriam-Webster, where she also writes, edits, and appears in the Ask the Editor video series. She blogs regularly on language and lexicography at CoreyStamper.com, and her writing has appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and on Slate.com. She is also the author of the new book, Word by Word, The Secret Life of Dictionaries. Corey, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks so much for having me. So many, many people use dictionaries, but I think rarely, if ever, do we pause to consider how dictionaries come to be. And this book is all about what dictionaries are are and are not, uh, who creates them and the process that they go through. So maybe the best place to start is how did you become a lexicographer? I became a lexicographer mostly by accident. Um, I went to school initially, actually, I went to school on the pre-med track. And I'm a science lover. And I was uh, just utterly decimated by organic chemistry. And so that was the end of my science career. I came back to school and I ended up getting a degree in medieval studies with a focus on early language and literature. So I studied a bunch of dead languages. I had Latin, I had some Greek, I had Old English and Old Norse. And when I graduated with my incredibly lucrative degree, I, you know, I worked in finance for a year and I happened to answer a want ad in the newspaper for an editorial assistant at a reference publisher. I think that's how it was initially framed. I didn't even know who it was. And it wasn't until I got called in for an interview that I realized this was an editorial assistant at Merriam-Webster. And even then, when I started the job, everybody who's an editor at Merriam-Webster, doesn't matter what level you come in at, everybody starts defining right away. So so I kind of, I literally kind of stumbled into this. So that kind of brings up the question of what are the formal requirements of lexicography or if someone wants to be a lexicographer? There's really only two formal requirements and then sort of two informal requirements. The two formal requirements are you need to have a four-year degree from an accredited college or university in any topic. We don't just take linguists and uh, English majors. And the other requirement you have to have is that you need to be a native speaker of English. English needs to be your first language because you need to be able to recognize sort of the fine grain ins and outs of English. And, and that's very hard to do, even if you're fluent in a second language. So those are really the only two formal requirements. Now, there's two informal requirements. Um, one is, is what I call Sprachgefühl, which is a German word that means a feel for language, the feeling of language. That means that you need to be able to really let language settle in and really kind of pull it apart at this micro level. You need to be able to look at a sentence and say, the word as in this sentence is functioning as an adverb, not a conjunction or a preposition. You need to be able to look at two different uses of the word plant and that might be related, but no sort of 
in your deep waters that they're not the same use of plant, they're different uses of plant. So you need to, you need to have a sense of that. And along with the Sprachgefühl, you also need to have a pretty good grasp of the standard rules of English grammar and then a willingness to throw all of your assumptions about what makes English good or right out the window in the face of facts and in the face of evidence. And that's usually the thing that's hardest for people who come into lexicography. That, I think, those last two is what I found most interesting, is that it really needs both of those skills, both an understanding of kind of the rules, broadly speaking, of English grammar, but also, like you said, you got to be able to just throw those rules away and not stick too hard to them. And it seems strange to me that you have to be able to do both those things because they seem kind of contrary to each other. Yeah, I mean, they are kind of contrary to each other, which is, I mean, I think that's one of the, the challenges of the job. Because um, th the thing is, is you need to be able to recognize what the standards for grammar are, how it's presented. Because when you're writing, even in definitions, for instance, you need to know, uh, do I use that or which in this clause? Can I use whom here? Or is this really the objective case? Or is the sub is it the subjective case? So you have to know that at the same time, it is, you know, it's really hard to, to come in with these deeply held notions of what language is that, that there is even such a thing as good English and bad English. And to have that, you have to be willing to let that go when you find out that, hey, you know, this thing that everyone says is bad English is actually several hundred years old, or this construction that everyone hates is actually just the personal preference of, you know, one guy from the late 1700s that everyone's repeated, and it doesn't have any basis in actual usage. So it is a weird tension to walk. You, you know, there are times when I write correspondence, I'll, I'll write answers and you know, I'm very aware of I have to make sure I'm using the right that and which. I have to make sure that if I use whom, it's in the proper case, because people assume that the dictionary is infallible, and then the people behind the dictionary must be infallible. So they're going to look at all of my responses with an extra measure of criticism. They're going to hold me to a higher standard because I am the dictionary. I do definitely want to talk a little bit more about the way the general public perceives what a dictionary is and the job it performs versus uh, what the lexicographers who edit the dictionary are actually trying to do, because it seems like those ideas of what the dictionary is are very, very different. So can you talk a little bit about that difference, what we sort of perceive the dictionary to to be and what when you're actually editing and working on creating entries or modifying entries in a dictionary, what you're actually trying to do? Oh, absolutely. So most people approach the dictionary as if it were a holy text, you know, that it is inviolable, it is complete, it is handed down unto us from on high. Um, and, and they assume that A, dictionaries never change, and B, that dictionaries are actually the guardians of language, that they're the ones who say, this is what's right and proper and good, and this is what's bad, this is improper. So lots of people imbue the dictionary itself with that kind of authority, and not just, I mean, honestly, not just authority on words, but authority on culture and time and era and 
all sorts of things that, that, you know, they've set the dictionary up to be just a general authority. In actuality, lexicographers don't, I mean, we, we don't like that at all. <laughs> that's not what we do. The job of a dictionary and, and not just a modern dictionary, but even dictionaries going back into the 16 and 1700s, the job of a dictionary is to record the language as it is used, not as you want it to be used. So that means that in every professionally edited dictionary in the English-speaking world, you're going to find entries for words that you consider to not be words, like irregardless. You will find entries for uh, constructions that you think are wrong, like the idea that decimate can't be used to refer to widespread destruction because that's how those words have been used. And we are duty-bound as lexicographers to record that. Now, it's also our job to tell you, for instance, that there is this controversy over the use of decimate, or that irregardless is not considered part of standard English, even though it's got lots of written use. So so we do sort of try to give a big holistic picture. But, you know, there are words in there and there are constructions in there that people deem to be wrong and ugly and horrible and a blight on English. And they're there because they're in use. And that's our job to record the language as it's used. This is when I was reading this book, um, it reminded me of a conversation I had with my father years and years ago. Um, I was probably like 15 years old, maybe 14, who knows, and I had made up some word or was using some word to describe something. And he, he told me, you can't use that. That's not a real word. And m me and my teenage kind of snarkiness, I actually went to the dictionary and looked up what the definition of a word was. And right. at the time, I believe it was something like it has to be utterable by a human and it has to convey meaning. And I was like, haha, it does, right. it doesn't say my word. It has to be in the dictionary. This is totally <laughs> right. a real wor word. And that has sort of become a bit of a, a family thing since that happened, that it is a real word, even if it's not in the dictionary. And right. I felt reading this book, like to some extent, I was a bit vindicated, uh, my 14 year old self, <laughs> which felt really good. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad to know that. I'm glad to hear that. That's what I live for, to vindicate 14-year-old girls. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting. I wonder how did this idea of the dictionary as prescriptive kind of get started? Was there a version of the dictionary in its initial stage or state where it was more prescriptive and it was kind of designed to be a set of rules for what is and isn't allowed in English grammar? Or has it always been just an attempt to snapshot the way English is used? Well, I would say the earliest English monolingual dictionaries were much more prescriptive. Um, the early ones were sort of, they were really written primarily to help with literacy. And literacy was about bringing people who could not read or who had um, ill manners up to a level of uh, well-manneredness, well-spokenness. So early, early English dictionaries were definitely much more prescriptive, but the way that they were prescriptive was sort of hidden. They didn't necessarily enter a word and say, this is an uncouth and horrible word, never use it. They just merely didn't enter those words. They said, these are the words that constitute the best practices of English. And that kind of, that was definitely there. Now, in the 1700s, you have sort of our patron saint, Samuel Johnson, who was a, a bookseller's son, and he was tapped by a group of, uh, you know, London 
hoity-toity folks to write an authoritative dictionary of English. And Samuel Johnson was not actually a gentleman proper. He was uh, one of the sort of rising middle class. And he started what we now do, which is he began his dictionary just by reading everything he could get his hands on. Now, he still made decisions about what kinds of words he was not going to enter into his dictionary. For instance, Samuel Johnson hated Americans, so he didn't enter any Americanisms into his dictionary. Um, he also decided he wasn't going to enter any low, vulgar words, so no slang, no obscenities. What's really fascinating, though, is... If you look at Samuel Johnson's dictionary, there's a lot more in there that we would sort of think, huh, that's actually kind of slangy or, oh, that's a little bit low, you know, vulgar, however you want to phrase it. And so, so this tradition has moved from, the needle has moved from sort of more prescriptive to less prescriptive as we've gone on. Really, by the time that the modern dictionary came into being, which would have been around the eh, really early 20th century, the needle was, was pretty far over towards descriptivism. But it's not, it hasn't moved that dramatically. Um, and I think that Lots of people assume that it's either all the way over at prescriptive or they assume it's all the way over at descriptive. You know, that dictionaries will just put any old crap in the, in there. They don't care. And that's really not the case. It's really sort of in between. But the needle has moved over time. We have become more descriptive. So obviously the dictionary, or at least dictionaries historically, and we'll talk about online dictionaries later, um, but dictionaries historically can't contain every possible word. Uh, there definitely are choices that are, that have to be made when you're creating a dictionary. So can you talk a little bit about how those decisions are made on what words get included and maybe what words don't? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing that every lexicographer does in sort of writing dictionaries is we read. And this is something that, I, again, we've done all the way back to the 16th, 17th centuries. You have to collect the language as it's used in order to define the language as it's used. So for modern lexicographers, we just read everything. Um, we read books, magazines, trade journals. We read newspapers. We read online content. So we'll read blogs and we'll read uh, web feeds and we will listen to podcasts and we'll read transcripts of uh, broadcasts and things like that. If it basically, if it has print on it, we're going to read it. And when you're reading, you're really looking for words that catch your eye. They can be new, they can be old, but when you find them, you sort of take the word in context and it gets slurped into a database. And each of those bits of context is called a citation. When it comes time to define a word, what you do is you collect all of the citations that have been taken for that word. And that can be, you know, that can be a literal handful. It can be six or seven. Or in some cases, that can be 10,000 uses. And you read through those citations and you divide up the citations by meaning, by contextual meaning. And if you have new meanings that aren't yet entered into the dictionary, you take that batch of new meanings and you run it through three criteria. The three criteria for entry that any new meaning of an old word or new word needs to meet is first, that word has to have widespread use. And not just widespread geographical use, but widespread tonal use. Ideally, you want to see that word used in 
blogs, you want to see that word used in trade journals, you want to see that word used in formal sources and informal sources. So widespread use is the first criterion. Second criterion is sustained use. So we need to make sure that a word has sort of settled down into the language. And sometimes that takes a while, depending on the word and depending on where it comes from. So we really want to make sure that it's got continuous use for a certain number of years, or that it's very clear from the get-go that this word is not going to drop out of the language. Because once a word gets into the dictionary, it's a lot more likely to be used. So it's kind of, you don't want to create a false positive. You don't want to accidentally force a word into the language when it's not really ready for the broader language. So I guess this is to try and limit the amount of words that, because there, there's so many kind of fleeting trendy phrases that are just kind of around for a year and then we never really hear of them again. I guess we, we definitely don't want to fill the dictionaries with words like that because I suppose it's just there'd be too much noise. <laughs> right. Or or it's it also sort of presents a false positive for what the language is, right? The idea with any general dictionary is that you're getting a cross-section of the language And you get all sorts of different types of words in there. But honestly, there are so many of these sort of fleeting coinages that if we're going to focus on entering those and not focus then on entering also technical jargon or scientific words or words from other fields that are sort of, you know, are tangential to our everyday life, then you give this idea that all of English is these short little words that nobody uses now. And for lexicographers, you also have to go through and say, all right, well, this is now dated, or I have to label this as historical, or I have to say that this is old fashioned. So yeah, you want, you want a word to sort of have settled into the language. Ideally, when you put a new word in the dictionary, you want half of the people who see it to say, oh my gosh, that's not in the dictionary already. And you want the other half of the people who see it to say, what is this? I have never seen this word before. That's, that's kind of the sweet spot. Interesting. So, yeah. Sorry. So I just want to talk for a second, uh, just about jargon because I, th- for me, it was a bit surprising to find out that jargon or particular scientific terms kind of have to hit uh, an amount of, I guess, widespread usage before they're they're put in a, a general purpose dictionary. Is that an accurate way of saying that? Yeah, that's an accurate way of saying that. Or, or to go a little finer grained, jargon or scientific terminology needs to have more general usage if it's going to be in a general use dictionary. So for things like an unabridged dictionary, where we really have the room to add more words, you know, we add more words from the scientific or technical fields that probably you wouldn't find in a smaller abridged dictionary. But yeah, I mean, we produce general use dictionaries. So we're looking at general vocabulary. Right. Well, that that definitely makes sense. But it's, again, it's one of those things where... uh, um, we don't think of those words as not real words because they're used by important people. So um, right. it, I think a lot of people would be surprised at the number of those types of words that are would be missing from a standard dictionary. Yeah. And, you know, again, it's I, I think this we all sort of have this experience in our normal lives, too. Right. Like if you're a scientist and you go to a cocktail party and someone says to you, what do you do? And you say, well, I'm a theoretical physicist and I work on quantum chromodynamics. People say, oh, that's awesome. Tell me what you're working on. If you start talking about, you know, glue on soup, no one knows what you're talking about, right? <laughs> like, 
you have to, you know, and you realize, oh, gluon soup is something that really only us nerds in QCD know anything about. Or if you're a doctor and, you know, you're a surgeon and someone says, oh, what's your favorite surgical instrument to use? Well, you have to say, oh, you know, well, I mean... You, you have to re you realize I can't just say I, I like using this particular tool because they don't know what that is. So you naturally sort of back up and explain it like, oh, I'm an ophthalmologist and there's this kind of knife that I like to use that looks like this and does this and I really enjoy using. You know, so so we automatically kind of do that in our real life, right? We realize that, that there has to be a certain amount of knowledge before we can impart knowledge. And I think that's kind of what the dictionary assumes too. Like, I can't put in an entry for gluon soup that is not going to be understood by somebody who, like me, doesn't know a whole lot about theoretical physics or quantum chromodynamics. So, so yeah, it is, it is a hard thing because I think that, again, if you're coming from this idea that the dictionary sort of sets boundaries around what language is, then of course you're going to be upset when you don't find your field's terminology in the general dictionary. So it, it is it is tricky. And it's, you know, how do you respond to that perception? How do you change that perception of what the dictionary is in such a way that the dictionary is still important to people? Because if you say, ah, eh, whatever, it just records sort of general stuff, then you're going to get a lot of people and scientists and technicians who are like, oh, forget it. Then I'm going to go, whatever, I'm going to use my specialty dictionary and not this general. I think it's probably also important for those words to be represented in a dictionary uh, to a certain extent, because as people hear them, they want a place to go to look them up. So if they're likely to hear it somewhere in the world, even if they're not a specialist, and they're, they need to know what that word means, or they want to know what the word means. Um, mm -hmm. At a certain point, I guess it's important that they, they need, they, they can go to a dictionary and find that word in there. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there are certainly times and it's very true in the sciences and in more technical fields where a word does not have a ton of general usage, but you can, you know, our specialists can look at it and say, oh yeah, this is a word that's not going to go anywhere. So for instance, when, you know, in the 80s, when the word AIDS first came, was first being used by epidemiologists, you know, we, because we read everything, we also, we have scientists who read all the technical journals that they can. So they knew that, you know, a, this word to describe this immunodeficiency syndrome was coming in. And they knew this is not going to be anything that goes away really quickly. So AIDS was entered into the dictionary very quickly. CRISPR is another one that got entered into the dictionary pretty quickly because it was very clear this is going to be, you know, this is going to be pretty, pretty important down the road and, and people are going to start looking for it. I think as things move online, people look for things faster too. So that changes the speed at which both words enter the language and the speed at which we define them. That's interesting to me that some of your specialists are, have a feel for what words, in particular in scientific literature, are more likely to become important and should be entered early versus ones that maybe aren't that important or too speculative or just won't hit the kind of main, get mainstream attention. That's interesting that, uh, 
that there are people who kind of have a feel for the new language of science. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm not one of those people, but the <laughs> but but you know, it, it's true. We have a bunch of specialists who um it's very interesting actually to sort of go through a defining batch with them, a batch of words because they'll, you know, they'll insert a word that, you know, I slob, slob that I am, have never heard. And they'll say, you know, this is, you know, we really need to include this because, you know, this technology is, is sort of taking hold. And so we need to start talking more about these sorts of things. And, and it's, it sort of spans the gamut in ways that I always surprises me. So recently, I was having a conversation with uh, one of our computer science people, and he and I were talking about uh, whether I, I had I had a word that I was going to define, and I was like, "Is this actually technical? Can I define this? Because if it's technical, you should define this." And the word was magstripe, which refers to the magnetic stripe on the back of a credit card, and it also refers to that type of transaction where you swipe it. That's a magstripe transaction. And he said, "Well, I mean, it's not that technical. No, you can do it." He's like, "But if you're going to do that, then we also need to enter skimmer, and we also need to enter chip, and we also need to enter chip and pin, and we, you know." And for him, this was just like, "Oh, obviously, we, you know, if we're going to enter magstripe, we've got to enter all of these other terms." And I was like, oh, so how about I'm going to not define this right now until you come up with this other list of terms and determine whether a general definer like me can actually define all of these terms? Because some of them, I probably, I could give it a shot, but I'd probably get some technical detail wrong. So, and that's something that's really fascinating about science defining. Um, I, I talked at length with our science definers for the book. And, um, and unfortunately, my chapter on science defining didn't make it into the final cut. But, you know, I mean, it's really common in science defining to you make one change to one entry, and then you have this whole host of other entries that you need to make a change to. Um, sort of the, the example we hold up is one of our biology editors had to make a change to the entry for Arbor Vitae, the tree. And it was a both expanding the genus and changing the taxonomy. And that led to her having to change 82 other entries oh, because wow. she, because she made one change. Um, <laughs> one of our other biologists talks about when you make a change to the word flu or influenza, you have to go through and change, you know, about 25 or 30 other entries that either cross reference influenza or use influenza in the definition. Or, um, or even sort of, you know, see also influenza or see also flu. And, and his response is like, oh, there's just so many types of flu. You just have no idea how many types of flu there are. And which, you know, I, I, I think it's a, it's amazing that they can keep up with all of it because I can't. Um, and I, and I never could. But it's, but it's also really interesting that they do have this very general sense of, of language. They're, they sort of see language in this general way, but they have the depth of knowledge to be able to enter in and handle the types of, of scientific jargon and technical terms in a way that is also scientifically accurate. So, so it is really, it is, it is, you know, they're amazing folks who can sit in that space and see things generally and see things technically. I'm curious, in particular, when it comes to um, more technical definitions, are in, when you're defining, are you restricted to words that appear in the dictionary that they're in? Or can you, I'm assuming that you can't use technical terms that aren't in the dictionary to describe another technical term. Right. When you write a 
definition, you are only allowed to use words that are entered in that dictionary. So you can imagine if you're going to enter a technical term and you have other technical terms within that definition, then you've got to make sure, A, that they're entered, and B, that the sense that they're being used with, the meaning that's being given to them in this new entry, is also in there at, at its own place in the dictionary. So so yeah, in that sense, um, and honestly, we all kind of struggle with that, but I think especially our science editors really struggle with it because if I'm talking about CRISPR, then, you know, I have, there's a whole, you know, giant list of other terms, A, that I should probably enter, or B, I should check and make sure that their entries are accurate because they all will refer back to CRISPR. It definitely sounds like a can of worms can be opened very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Okay, so you've decided that a word, a new word of some kind gets to be added to the dictionary. So right. talk to me about defining. When you you are presented with a word, I guess you have some quotations of that word in use. And now your job today is to write a definition for that word. How how does that work? How, what is defining in the lexicographer sense? Cool. So speaking of can really, of worms, <laughs> I know, <laughs> right. How long is this supposed to run? Yeah. So what's very, so what's interesting and what will, will interest the science for the people, people is that we actually have a really um, intense set of rules and guidelines for how we define. So in a definition, you generally have two parts um, and, and we use Latin words for them because Latin always makes you sound smarter. <laughs> There's the, the genus term, which is sort of the broad category that this word's meaning fits within. And then there are the differentiae, which are the phrases that differentiate this particular thing from other members of the genus. So when you sit down to define, the first thing you need to do is you need to find the right genus term. And this sounds like it would be simple, but it's really not simple. Um, for instance, if I'm defining ice cream, do I define that as a dessert? Well, not always. People get ice cream cones, you know, any time of the day. All right, I can't define it as a dessert, but it's definitely sweet. Okay, can I call it a confection? Well, so what's the connotation of confection? Is the connotation of confection something baked, like a, like a cake or like a candy? Um, can I call it a frozen custard? Well, not always, because we have to go look at the definition for custard, and you see that custard refers to a cooked uh, cream and egg mix. Well, some ice creams don't have eggs, some ice creams aren't cooked. So you really, you really start kind of getting into the weeds of, you know, like, what is ice cream at its heart? Like, what do, what do I do with this? <laughs> Sounds um, a little bit like an existential crisis of ice cream. <laughs> it is, right? It is. It's an existential crisis of ice cream. And but the thing that's really interesting is while you are sitting here sort of sifting through the genus terms, there's also a very clear line for all lexicographers, which sounds kind of like really dumb hair splitting to most people, but is a really important point that lexicographers need to hold on to. And that is that when you are defining, you are describing what that word means in this particular context. You're not describing what the ineffable nature of the thing itself is. So 
in some sense, me saying what is ice cream is kind of, you know, well, I mean, I can't say what ice cream is. I can't. (laughs) It's not my job to describe what the essential nature of ice cream is. What I can do is I can say in this sense, ice cream is always used of a a cold, sweet confection. And then I can go from there. So, So that's a tension you have to keep in mind. And it gets a little tricky when you're doing uh, scientific words or when you're doing concrete nouns, because it's very easy to think this is what ice cream is. This is what a chair is. This is what a couch is. But you but as a lexicographer, you have to you have to keep that distance. We deal only with the words. And that becomes important when you start hitting like major cultural uh, hot button words, basically, where you can't say, you know, this is what marriage is. You can say this is what the word marriage means in this particular context. So when you sit down to define, first, you have to find a genus term. And sometimes that's easy and sometimes it's not. And sometimes it just depends on what mood you're in. Um, I remember coming across an older definition someone had written for cake and the genus term was batter. And I thought, no, that's no, cake is not a batter. <laughs> cake is a baked good. You know, come on. Duh. Like whatever. <laughs> but you know, if you're, if you're deep in the weeds of cake or in the deep in the weeds of ice cream, I can see why you'd suddenly say ice cream is, um, you know, a cream. Like, oh, I just, I got to put something down. So you start by coming up with your genus term and then you go to the differentiae. And you start going through, okay, so what makes this confection different from all other confections? You know, it's kind of, all right, here we go. What makes ice cream different from candy? What makes ice cream different from cake? What makes ice cream different from custard? What makes ice cream different from gelato or sherbet or anything else? And those are these little phrases that you can say, you know, so let's say for ice cream, I have said it is a confection. So some of the differentiae are it's frozen. That's a good one. It's usually sweet. That's another good one. Um, it is often made with a custard, a milk or an egg base. Okay, that's all right. Um, and then you, so you start sort of piling on these differentiae, but you really need to be careful that you're also leaving enough room for any future ice cream in whatever shape or form to also fit that definition. So are Dippin' Dots going to work? Like our dip, well, our Dippin' Dots ice cream that we could do a whole podcast on what Dippin' Dots are. But, <laughs> you know, so are, do, are Dippin' Dots covered by this entry I'm writing for ice cream? Are, uh, what if someone, like, what about soft serve? What about, uh, rolled ice cream? What about, so, so you kind of have to keep all of these different examples of how the word ice cream is used in mind. And so the science of it is we have very particular rules, but there's also an art to it. And that is knowing when to stop, basically. <laughs> when do I stop saying what ice cream is or how ice cream is used here? Um, and, and that, I mean, both of those things are a practice. They take lots of time to sort of get into. And sometimes words that seem really simple will, will just have you spinning your wheels for hours because, you know, if you can't, I can't find a good genus term or I've got too many differentiae or, you know, well, maybe this is actually two different meanings and I'm smashing it into one or maybe this is one meaning and I'm trying to split it up into too many meanings. And you, yeah, it, it can really, it can throw you for a loop. That's for sure. One of my favorite sections in the book is 
the chapter on defining small words. Um, and I think that that's really a good example of how in the weeds looks from a lexicography standpoint, because <laughs> you describe uh, in great detail your work trying to define the word take. Um, and if you could just give us a taste of what it's like to be given a word like go or but or take, uh, because it really was one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah. So the first thing when you're defining, I said, you know, we read all those citations and we we sort of divide up the citations that we have by meaning. So when you do that for a word like go or do or take um, first, you're going to have 20,000 pieces of evidence that we've collected for those words. And second, you're going to have, you know, 200 different definitions that you've got to kind of keep track of. And the way that those words are used, I mean, especially small words, they get used in such a way that we hardly ever think of them as words, honestly. Like if I said to you, uh, give me an example of a short word, you would probably pull out some like small Scrabble related word, right? Like, <laughs> like right. Yeah. Or, or dog or hop or pop or, you know, some, some either Scrabble related word or some kind of Dr. Seuss word. Nobody says as is a small word because you, in your brain, you almost don't categorize them as words unless you're being forced to. And that happens with words like take and go and do. Their uses look very, very similar, but can be really, really different. So if I say let's do dinner and let's do laundry, those are two different meanings of do. And if I put those two sentences together, it's really clear, right? Like let's do dinner means let's go out to dinner. Let's do laundry means let's wash the dirty clothes. And you go, well, yeah, duh, obviously those are very different. But when you're looking through 20,000 citations and it's all some variety of let's do blank, <laughs> you're kind of... <laughs> Your eyes glaze over and you start to wonder if you even speak English and you come away knowing actually you don't speak English. You speak some weird Joe low German dialect. This isn't, this doesn't make sense. This isn't real. And the thing is, is that these words require that you read very carefully. Their definitions are often very difficult to write because they tend to be um, used as what we call function words. So it, you can't write a standard definition. You can say this word is often used to indicate direction or indicate uh, motion away from something. It doesn't always mean to move away from X place to Y place. It can, it can sort of indicate motion broadly. And you really have to, you have to have been doing this job for long enough that you have no social skills left to be able to really do that kind of defining. The other thing is they take forever. I spent a month on take and I felt very proud of myself. And then um, I had a dinner with a lexicographer from the Oxford English Dictionary, which is a giant 22 volume historical dictionary. And he worked on the entry for run and it took him nine months to do run. Whew. And yeah, I mean, nine months on one word is on one word that everyone thinks is really, really simple, but is actually one of the most complicated verbs in English. So, so yeah, the, the small words, you know, defining long words, those are pretty easy because they usually have just one or two meanings and they're pretty fixed. And most people, you know, they have a, a manageable number of citations. But the small words are really sort of, that's really when you start getting into the complexity of English in a lived, felt way. <laughs> 
that to say, well, I don't know, you know, this use of as could be a conjunction or it could be an adverb and, and I can't tell the difference between the two of them anymore. So I'm just going to pick one and say this is kind of more conjunctive than adverbial. Or, you know, I joke in the book that you get, you hit a certain point where you just say, oh, you know, screw it. It's an adverb. Adverb is the junk drawer of the English language. So <laughs> everything can be an adverb if you look at it long enough. But it's usually the small words that drive you to screw it. It's an adverb. It's interesting to kind of go down the rabbit hole of this. I was just thinking as you use the example, let's do laundry, that that sort of use of the word do is similar to the use of the word let do your homework in some way, but they're also different. And trying to figure out the right level of abstraction for that definition would be so hard. Yeah. And, and you also have to parse, okay, let's do laundry. Let's do your homework. You know, some people would say, well, you know, that sense of do has a sense of, of forcing someone, a sense of obligation, a sense of making. But actually, it's not that doesn't apply to the word do. It applies to let's. And that's the other thing, is that you have to be able to pull apart in that kind of way. If I said, let's do our homework, that sense of do is the same sense of do as I did my homework, as I don't want to do my homework, as did you do your homework? And that that kind of, so, so a sense of do here means making someone undertake and finish a project is no the the forcing someone the making someone that's in let's the undertaking and finishing a project that's inherent in the word do so even in that way you have to really be able i mean it, it is kind of i imagine that it's a lot like um if you're a surgeon and you are trying to get to someone's appendix right like there's a whole lot of stuff that you have to go through and sort of be aware of, <laughs> but push aside to find the appendix, this tiny little worm of a thing that you need to take out. Like, there's just a lot of other stuff in the way. Yeah, and unless you, you're, you're aware of it, you, it's, it's ends up getting involved in do in a way that you don't need it to. Yeah, you definitely have to know what's not the appendix, which is just <laughs> right. as important as what is. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah. We'll be back with more Science for the People right after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. You're listening to Science for the People. I'm your host, Rochelle Saunders. I also want to talk about offensive words and bias, because I think that was also a really interesting topic that you touch on in the book, because dictionaries have offensive words in them. And to some extent, what's more interesting, other than the obvious swear words, is definitions or words that can be offensive or that maybe can be used in a biased way. 
and mm-hmm. how that can be tricky in making sure that the bias of a word is in its is that you're describing the bias of the word, not writing a description that is biased. And that is an interesting kind of difficult area to navigate for some for some words. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And and I think for in ways that we don't even in ways that that don't even strike you until you start getting into it. Um, so so one of the words I focus on is the B word. I will not say it for so as not to offend the tender sensibilities of the science for the people listeners. But uh, if you would like to say it once, we will leave the B and bleep it if you'd like to. Okay. One of the words I focus on is the word bitch, which I will not say again so that we don't have to bleep it forever. <laughs> and and. What's interesting is I sort of undertake a historical review of the definition itself, sort of compared with the way that it's used. And you find that that there is this weird sort of both a disconnect from the offensiveness of the word in some ways and a weird sort of uh, sanitation of the word in other ways. Because unfortunately, the way that dictionaries are written is they're written to be extremely boring. And that means, particularly for offensive words, you you need to make them not just boring, but you do need to, there is a clinical approach to them. They are a word like any other word, but they also are words that have a long and hurtful history. Um, and, and so what's fascinating is until you start dealing with those words, you really have no idea that you hold your own biases about these words. And part of your job as a lexicographer is to set those biases aside. And that's really, really hard with some words because you, you know, sometimes you have a lived experience of a word that is really hard to let go of. Or sometimes you feel really inadequate to describing exactly why this word is offensive or exactly how offensive this word is because you don't have a lived experience of that word. And I think the thing that's really interesting is that as we sort of move into a a lexical space as a broader, you know, English-speaking group where we're more aware and in some ways more defensive of the way that we use words, um, this also means that then lexicographers have to deal with reclamation of words. So, for instance, the B word is a word that has been reclaimed by a lot of women as a word connoting strength, independence, sort of, you know, a I don't really care what you think attitude. And that's awesome. But for many people, that word is still offensive. And its offensiveness depends on the things that lexicographers can't measure necessarily very well in print. It really, the offensiveness of a word is felt by the hearer. <laughs> and, and lexicographers aren't the hearer. They're a bystander. So, so it is just, I mean, you know, you could write books and books and books about how difficult it is to insert yourself as a lexicographer and accurately represent what is generally one of the most painful lexical interactions that people have while at the same time not taking that pain on yourself. You have to be able to say this word is sometimes offensive. It's not always offensive. Sometimes it's offensive. But trying to say when it's offensive and when it's not offensive is a moving target. And and we can't do that. So, so yeah, 
those kinds of words are, um, even if they seem like they would be really straightforward, they're really not. Because it, it again, it, it's putting you smack in the middle of a simple lexical interaction that is intended to and is felt as causing deep injury. And how do you capture that in a dictionary definition? You just can't do it well. There's also an interesting story you tell about finding bias in a definition that for a word that isn't kind of on its face offensive in any way. So I'm thinking of the term nude, um, mm. which in the definition as a color, there are and can be and historically have been, especially in the fashion industry, a lot of um, very racial biases implicit in that term that were in, I believe it was a definition that you were modifying, sort of built into the definition as well. Yeah, so so that was a really interesting, uh, that was an interesting experience. The word was actually, we were just getting ready to bring it up for revision. And color terms in general, I should start by saying color terms in general are pretty fixed. They tend not to change a lot. So if somebody, you know, defines a color term and it doesn't change in 30 years, that's really not, that's not surprising. But we were in this position where the word was just about, we were just about ready to hit that part of the alphabet. Um, and then we did a video featuring women of color trying on nude colored garments, which of course were all beige. Because <laughs> cause that's what the fashion industry up until very recently calls nude, is it's a very particular light beige tan kind of color. And, and they also highlighted the definition for nude, which the color was defined in reference to white skin. And of course, nowadays, you think that's like, what? How could you possibly let a definition like that exist? But 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago, honestly, that's what the fashion industry called nude. It wasn't one particular color. It was a range of colors that were calibrated to look like a naked white person. Um, and so what was really fascinating was stumbling across this entry and, you know, first having to do photographic research, which is something lexicographers don't do about what are, what things are called nude? What colors are the things that are called nude? Cause if you just go by print, you have no idea. You know, it says, uh, you know, camis in black, pink, white, and nude. Well, that doesn't tell you anything about what that color nude is. So, um, so yeah, when, I mean, it was very clear when the video came out, like, oh, this is, yeah, like, yeah, it's a good thing that this is about to come up for revision because it really needs revising. But we also had to spend some time saying, all right, so historically, the fashion industry has calibrated things to white people, to whiteness. It's been, that's, you know, it's white normativity. That's what that is. So has the fashion industry moved forward? And if they have, then how do you, how do you rewrite that to talk about how the, the word nude when used of color refers specifically to skin tone without talking about skin tone without, you know, what kind of colors could be nude? And so, so it was really fascinating to sort of run across it and, and just be really shocked by, I mean, I was really shocked by it. And there were some people in the office who said, look, you know, this is the fashion industry is white normative. So the definition is accurate and saying, ah, is it? <laughs> like, first, is it accurate? And B, if it is accurate, can we still remove a reference to white skin? Because that's an obvious bias. That's an obvious, we don't, we don't calibrate color in terms of skin tone anymore. Think about Crayola's huge issue with flesh. Like we don't, we don't do that anymore. 
So, so there are times when you run across those sorts of things in dictionaries as you're revising them. And, and if anything, it just reminds you how quickly our views of language change. Um, I mean, one of the things I'm doing right now is I'm actually going through a whole bunch of entries that use the term husband and wife in the definition. And I'm checking them to make sure that they're not improperly gendered. You know, should we just use partner or spouse in those definitions instead? And if they're historical, you know, if they're referring to, you know, a type of marriage that was common in, you know, Old Testament times or something like that, well, maybe not. But if we're talking about modern marriage, then yeah, we, we can't gender. You can't gender certain things anymore. And 10 years ago, that was a totally fine thing to say. Sort of, well, that's how the preponderance of the evidence is used. So, so you walk a fine line between describing what's there, but also, you know, like I said with ice cream, you also want it to be broad enough that, that if there's a massive change to what ice cream is or, you know, who spouses in a marriage can be, that you're not scrambling suddenly to revise all of these definitions because now they're out of date. So when you come to a term like marriage, at some point in the dictionary that you work on, I presume it was a gendered term. And at some point it is shifted to be a non-gendered term, or at least to acknowledge the existence of gay marriage. And that that transition may have been later than some people would have wanted and probably earlier than other people would have wanted. So at what point when uh, a term, a sort of sacred term like that changes in the cultural zeitgeist or is starting to change, does the dictionary shift and put that shift in in the, the definition for that word? So with the marriage issue, I almost called it the marriage debacle. The marriage, <laughs> with the marriage issue, one of the things that we ran into is people make an assumption that, or some people make an assumption, I should say, that the dictionary changes language and a change to language changes the culture that that language describes. And that was how, when we made our first change to the definition for marriage, this was back in 2003, we added a subsense that referred to same-sex marriage. So we had one definition that referred to uh, heterosexual marriage, one definition that referred to same-sex marriage. They were linked together, but uh, but were separate at that point. When we entered that in 2003, we had a lot of people respond with that exact line of reasoning. The dictionary is changing the language. If you're changing the language, you're going to change the culture. And ergo, Merriam-Webster is not being uh, objective in this. You have an agenda. But the, the fact is, is that's flipped. Culture moves, and then language follows behind culture to accommodate the changes in culture. And then the dictionary follows behind language. So when we entered this definition in 2003, we were one of the last major American dictionaries to do so. But more to the point, the word had been used to refer to same-sex marriage you know, huge amounts in the previous 15 years by both proponents and opponents alike. So in that sense, everybody's using marriage in this way. And it turns out, I mean, we're now investigating possible evidence of this use of marriage back to the 1800s. So it's not, you know, it's not like this is a brand new thing. It's not like this is a brand new meaning of the word. But because it is a cultural touch point, and it, it is really kind of a litmus test for a lot of people, you know, do you support gay marriage? Do you not support gay marriage? That to see it in print really seemed like pushing an agenda to some people. Um, 
And what's so we have since changed even from 2003, we've since changed the definition of marriage. And I, I believe that our newest definition is completely ungendered. We talk about how it is a civil and legal um, union between two consenting adults, I think is how we put it. Um, I don't remember the exact new wording. But at this point, you know, legally, in the US, same sex marriage is federally legal, just as heterosexual marriage is federally legal. And more to the point, we're seeing the word marriage used more and more and more without those modifiers, same sex or gay, which means that in lots of people's usage, that that sense of marriage is, you know, we now just think of it as one thing. It's not their same sex marriage and their straight marriage. The way that the, the language is moving is to do away with those, the differences between the two. So I think what's interesting is that, you know, if people firmly believe that the dictionary, the change in a definition that a dictionary makes is going to adversely affect culture, then they're giving the dictionary a, a lot more credit than the dictionary deserves or has, frankly. Um, but they're also imbuing the dictionary with this sort of weird magical uh, this weird magic. They're saying, you know, if you just didn't enter this sense of marriage, then somehow gay marriage itself would not exist. And that's, it's fascinating to me that because when you break it down, that's kind of what it gets to. People feel like if we acknowledge it, then suddenly we're legitimizing the thing. And it's fascinating to me because I think that's, you know, it's not how language works. Like, you know, if that's how it worked, we would have removed murder and genocide from the dictionary already, thereby bringing about world peace. Like, <laughs> like that's just language doesn't work that way. So, so it is an interesting thing. And, and, you know, you do have to be sensitive in some ways as a lexicographer to the fact that some people do hold words themselves as sacred. And that means they don't want words to change. They don't want words to ever change meaning. But words change meaning all the time. Just about every word in our language has changed meaning at some point. And, and our job is to track those changes. Um, so sometimes, you know, when people would write in upset about changes to marriage, I would try to explain why we made the changes. But oftentimes, after a while, I stopped answering because it was kind of like, we, we don't have, like, in order for you to understand why I'm doing this, you have to accept a philosophy of what the dictionary is that you can't accept because it, it doesn't fit within your worldview. I can tell you the dictionary records the language as it's used and you'll just continue to disbelieve that. So, so we're stuck and, and I have defining I have to do instead of emailing <laughs> you back and forth. So. Uh, my 14 year old self at the dinner table is, uh, is pleased that words can have that, that my words could be invented and be used in the dictionary. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, keeps me in a job. <laughs> Corey, thank you so much. Uh, really interesting book. And you have a job that I think in another life I would love to have. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rochelle. If you want to learn more about Corey Stamper or her book, Word by Word, The Secret Life of Dictionaries, you will find links to click in the show notes for this episode on our website, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to our social media feeds to subscribe to the show in iTunes and to join the discussion by leaving a comment on our episode posts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. 
Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 